Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere for October 8th, 2020. This is the weekly podcast from Design Museum Everywhere. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of the museum. My co-host Liz is out this week, so I'm once again flying solo, but thankfully I have Ryan producing and Amanda editing. Big thanks to you both. So you might've seen we have a presidential election coming up in less than a month. Today, we'll be discussing the intersection of design and voting, how to make voting a good experience and make it accessible and equitable for all. We have two great guests today. Our guest co-host is Dana Chisnell. Dana knows a thing or two about design and voting. She edited the field guides for ensuring voter intent, and she continues to have an amazing career in the civic design space. And our guest today is Beth Huan. She's the executive director of Massachusetts Voter Table, where she works with community organizations to increase turnout in civic leadership in communities of color and working class people in the state of Massachusetts. Plus, as always, we'll have our weekly dose of good design. Before we dive in, a few things happening at the Design Museum. I know there's parents and teachers out there looking for lessons and fun design activities for their students. So I wanted to share that our education team recently published our latest Design Together activity. This one is all about learning how to draw orthographic views of everyday objects, right? Front, side, top. Something I had to do a lot in design school. The lesson is perfect for fourth through 12th graders, and you can find it on our website or download the whole lesson as a PDF. Check it out at designmuseumeverywhere.org. Scroll down a bit and click on Design Together. I also want to remind everyone who's listening to check out our Workplace Innovation Summit. This year, the summit is virtual and takes place over the work week, and we have some great presentations and workshops planned. Uh, We're even going to do some live podcast recording so you all can ask questions of our guests as well. I think that'll be fun. So there's lots to look forward to. Learn about it all on our website, designmuseumeverywhere.org, and click on events. Okay, on November 3rd, we have an election for president here in the United States. For those of you who know me, you know I love politics. And so November 3rd is like, I don't know, my Super Bowl. This year, I think many people are considering (laughs) this the Super Bowl because the stakes are huge. Uh, Yet roughly 60% of Americans don't turn out for elections, which is just always blows my mind. Uh, Our guest co-host wrote a piece about the epic journey of American voters, and we subsequently had her speak at one of our Design Museum mornings. So I'll quote her article uh, where she says, the real problem is that voting in America is just hard. Like anything, voting is an experience that should be designed to maximize participation. Uh, So I'm very excited to have Dana Chisnell with us. She is a pioneer and thought leader in civic design. The field guides to ensuring voter intent that she edited are now in the permanent collection at the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. Dana teaches a field course on design and government at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And from 2014 to 2016, she served in the Obama White House as a generalist problem solver for the United States Digital Service, which I definitely want to learn more about. She's now Director of Project Redesign at the National Conference on Citizenship. Dana, welcome to the show. I am very excited to be here. Oh, thank you. It's great to see you. This is how we socialize yeah, now yeah. through the podcast. So yes, always nice to see your face. I'd love to start um, and just hear your journey into this world of civic design and design for democracy. Like what led you into this work? It all started on election day in 2000. That was it, really. I, uh, 
I lived in San Francisco then, and I uh, was watching the news, uh, watching the returns from the East Coast, and uh, was uh, seeing on the news video of people leaving the polling place in Florida saying, I don't think I voted for the guy I meant to vote for. <laughs> and I was like, that's interesting. That seems like a design problem. I wonder how elections get done. And so I, I sent an email to my district supervisor and I was like, how do I find out how elections get done? He's like, you go down to city hall, the election department's in the basement and you just <laughs> walk up to the window and you say, how do elections get done? And I kind of did that. Actually, I called first, but um, nice. I, uh, I uh, did go to city hall. I had a long conversation with the person who was the chair of a committee called the ballot simplification committee. I ended up being on the committee <laughs> of course <laughs> for about five years. It was great. I loved it. Um, it was um, its purpose is to write the summary digests of all the city county measures that are on the ballot. I did 20 elections um, and I uh, was sad to have to give it up when I moved to uh, the Boston area. But that was the beginning. Mm. And um, I got involved in a couple of volunteer projects and then got lucky and worked on some design research projects that informed um, what ballots look like and what um, instructions are like on ballots now. And then in 2013, Whitney Quisenberry and I founded the Center for Civic Design. Wow, that's awesome. Wow, from 2000. And like th that was like the hanging chads, right? Yeah, um, that's exactly right. Yeah, can you, for folks, yes. I was alive and I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I voted in that election. Um, yes, I did. Um, can you describe what the big problem was in that election? Yeah, so um, in 2000, a lot of jurisdictions were using a voting system that involved uh, punch cards. Um, it's a rectangular card that has a bunch of numbers printed on it, tiny, tiny little numbers. And around each of those numbers is a, is a perforated box that's called a chad. And that card slides in behind a, a little apparatus that kind of looks like a book, hmm. uh, except that in the, in the spine of the book, in the crotch between the left page and the right page, is actually an open... Um, slot where there are round holes that are meant to align uh with candidates lists in oh the gosh. booklet and <laughs> then so you push a pin through that hole next to your candidate and pushes the chad out of the punch card gotcha. and then all the punch cards get gathered and they get um computed uh for the tally um, and in, uh, in Florida, and it turns out a whole bunch of other mm. counties, uh, in Florida and, uh, and Georgia, the election official in Miami Dade County realized that she had a lot of older voters. Mm. Uh, and what do older people ask for when they're looking at print materials? <laughs> they always ask for bigger print. Yep. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to make the print bigger. So on the presidential contest and probably other contests in this ballot, um, instead of having all the candidates lined up on the left, uh, by increasing the type size, this uh, flowed the candidate list over onto the right-hand side oh, as see. well. And so this led to an interlaced effect. This is the butterfly effect, mm -hmm. um, where it was actually every other candidate was on the left and 
oh then interspersed on the right. And so you could see how somebody might make the mistake. It turns out that thousands of people did, mm-hmm. uh, we think, and uh, that changed the outcome of the election. Designers, in case you are wondering, every single decision you make yeah. is important. Yes. Yeah, that is a even the ones that. Yeah, even the ones that seem like they're not a big deal. Yeah. They're important. Mm, mm, yeah. yeah. So when did the field guides um, come into play? Uh, a few of us had met up and done some work together. Drew Davies was the head of the Design for Democracy project mm. at AIGA. Mm. And they this project was a couple of years long. It was funded by the Election Assistance Commission to study and develop a design system for best practice ballots. Um, They did a beautiful job. They really did an amazing, fantastic job on the research and on the design. And if you go download this document, it is one of the, it's a world-class design system and largely unappreciated. And you'll never find it because it's called uh, something like (laughs) Effective Designs for the Administration of Federal Elections. But it it is super gorgeous. Anyway, when it got published in 2007, the Election Assistance Commission sent it out on CD-ROMs. Oh, wow. Because that was the medium. That's what you do back then. Yeah. Well, remember, iPhones weren't even out yet when this came out. Exactly. So uh, so sent it around on CD-ROM. The um, election officials were not interested and not impressed. They Mm. had a lot of other things to do. Uh, So it got no traction. Marsha Lawson. Uh, had come up with the original um, top 10 list for for design for ballots. And we're like, that's a good idea, but that's not quite enough because there weren't illustrations, for examples. Mm. And so I had given a talk somewhere talking about um, design for good and civic design and um, uh, looking for money to do more election-related stuff. And somebody came up to me after the talk and said, I think I know how to get you the money. Kickstarter had just started. Oh. <laughs> and so this was fall, spring, fall of uh, 2011. And uh, I went to Drew and to Whitney, who I'd worked with on a, a couple of research projects. And she was on some boards and commissions related to elections. And we we're like, let's put this together in a little nice. package. And decided on the format being uh, booklets uh, that are published, that are printed by Scout Books in Portland, Oregon. Nice. Um, Scout Books. They're a really fantastic company. And they've been so supportive of the field guides over the year. Um, So the the format's tiny, um, uh, like three by five. Uh, It's 28 pages per booklet. So we had all these neat constraints to to work to, and we had four topics that we wanted to do right away. And so uh, the Kickstarter generated $20,000, which was enough for us to make the first 500. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. And they came out in 2012. Now they're all over the world. You have a sense of, you know, what the impact of them has been. I think they are so a beautiful and then b like easy to understand and i just wonder if people are actually using them yeah well we know that there are about five thousand sets extant in the world so i told you about the committee in san francisco um so i left there uh a few years later i went back to visit 
And I, um, I called up the clerk who worked with the committee and asked her if I could stop by. She's like, yeah, totally love to do that. Um, and I get there and they've reserved a conference room and she's pulled the heads of each of the little um, <laughs> departments within the department. And they had all prepared this sort of before and after where they'd reworked all of these artifacts. And um, at the end, I said, this is really amazing work. Did you, you know, did you hire an agency to right. do this? No, no, no. We did it all ourselves. Like, so what happened? Yeah. And she pulls out her set of field oh, guides and she says, awesome. these just made it all feel so doable. Oh, that's awesome. And we've heard stories like this I bet. over and over again. People tell us that they keep them on their desk. I believe it. I'm curious to jump back to the um, generalist problem solver. <laughs> we just had uh, Ann Peterson from 18F. So we learned a bit about oh, cool. 18F and that was really fun. But yeah, I'm curious what a generalist problem solver does. The U.S. Digital Service uh, is sort of a sibling organization to 18F. Mm. They both grew up at about the same time. Gotcha. They're not exactly twins, but uh, both in 2014, both out of a reaction to the problems with healthcare.gov, mm, the failure mm, yeah, of healthcare.gov when it launched in 2013. Um, and a bunch of the people who uh, helped rescue healthcare.gov came to work for the U.S. Digital Service. Mm. Um, the, one of the differences about the digital service from ATF is that USDS works generally on fixing problems like healthcare.gov in the federal government. And there are a lot of projects like that, like I bet. 30 <laughs> at any given time. And so um, I ended up being in the first cohort of folks in the digital service. And um, we realized that while having software engineers is going to be important and uh, server reliability engineers, because like if the site's not up, there's no user experience to be have. So while all that technology stuff was going to be really important, it wasn't going to take long before you could stabilize systems and you had to start working on what the public was going to experience more directly in trying to get government services. And so I uh, expanded the team to include policy people and designers and design researchers. And uh, But we we came to understand pretty quickly that if you just did engineering or you just did design, you're kind of on the bench for part of the time. And that was not ideal. So uh, we wanted to, uh, we realized that the most effective folks on that team uh, could look at problems and work on ways to solve those problems. Mm. They were resourceful, resilient folks who um, would hack their way through the bureaucracy to that's try awesome. to get stuff done yeah that's cool i'm sure it really literally was like hacking <laughs> there's a lot there um a couple of final questions here i'm wondering you know because we're going to talk um more about voting with beth um but how do you think the design of voting the voting experience has changed from like when you first got into this world um to now, is it better, worse? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's way more professional mm. um, in terms of delivery uh, and there's more technology involved. So when I started talking to 
town and, and county clerks about how they ran their elections in the early 2000s, uh, everybody used to use this analogy of putting on a wedding. And <laughs> like, it's just not like that anymore. Um, uh, it is much more complex and it is taken much more seriously. It's, it's really a profession. Like you could grow up and say, I, I want to run elections for a mm-hmm. living. That's, it could be a thing. Yeah. And in fact, I would like it if more women did that because the people who run elections in the country are mostly women, but in the larger jurisdictions, it's all men. Mm, I see. Yeah. That's a whole other discussion. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole uh, other episode. <laughs> uh, but um, so it's really quite different from the early 2000s. We don't use punch cards anymore. Although somebody, <laughs> somebody posted a picture of their ballot, their mail-in ballot from someplace in Indiana yesterday on Twitter and like 20 people <laughs> sent this thing to me saying, obviously you haven't been to Indiana to work on this. Um, Cause they use a version of a punch card. That's an optical. Scan, oh, I see. Uh, instead. So you Yikes. don't have to have the, the apparatus, but um, anyway, mostly we're not using punch cards anymore. We're using modern voting systems and modern design and layout. In addition, we now have uh, ballot marking devices in many jurisdictions, which means people are interacting with a touchscreen to make their selections, but it prints out a ballot that is human readable Mm. and human countable. Uh, And uh, I love this because this is this means that people with disabilities, people with language issues, people who have reading issues, all can use the same voting system it's yeah. not segregated mm-hmm. um there are other concerns to talk about about that of but, course <laughs> um, but for 2016 by far the biggest change is uh working around covid yeah yeah that's a big change again this this last question um this will probably be a, another episode but i'm so curious what you're working on now um <laughs> at the national conference on citizenship Uh, Can you share uh, what the project is there? The National Conference on Citizenship uh, exists to uh, make it possible for every person to to participate fully in our democracy, not only in voting, but in civic life generally. A couple of people who I worked with at the U.S. Digital Service and I got together to create a a tiny little civic startup that we call Project Redesign. The idea is to move human-centered design, put people at the center of public policy and move human-centered design as far upstream in the policymaking process as possible. That sounds awesome. Oh, thank you so much for being here and sharing your thought leadership with us. It's my pleasure. Listeners, if you want to learn more about the field guides we talked about, check out civicdesign.org slash fieldguides. And also visit ncoc.org to learn more about the National Conference on Citizenship. And Dana, please stay with us. I will bring Beth Huan from Massachusetts Voter Table into the conversation. Join us December 7th through 11th for our fifth annual Workplace Innovation Summit, an immersive five-day virtual event experience focused on the future of how and where we work. At the Workplace Innovation Summit, you'll learn directly from the experts and become an expert yourself by engaging in meaningful conversations to develop your during and post-COVID workplace strategy. Topics include augmenting existing spaces, wellness and workplace culture, equity in the workplace, 
collaborative technology, and more. You'll experience keynote presentations, interactive workshops, and virtual networking opportunities. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org to learn more. Let's connect, reflect, reform, and shape what happens next in the workplace at the 2020 Workplace Innovation Summit. Attend virtually from anywhere in the world December 7th through 11th. Get your tickets today at designmuseumeverywhere.org. We're back and we're joined by our special guest. Beth Huang is the executive director at the Massachusetts Voter Table, an organization that integrates nonpartisan voter engagement with grassroots organizing. Great combo. Beth and her team fight for resources, representation, and power for communities of color, working class people, new citizens, and youth in Massachusetts. Beth serves on the steering committee of Raise Up Massachusetts and the Election Modernization Coalition and convenes Mass Counts, a coalition that works with nonprofits to achieve a complete count in the 2020 census, which we all know is extremely important. Beth, welcome to the show. Great. It's great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you, particularly when I'm sure you're extremely busy. We are six weeks <laughs> away from this election, and so this is, I'm guessing, your prime time. And days away from the end of the 2020 census. Oh my gosh, the double. <laughs> uh, so thank you. I, I wonder if we can start and just have you tell us more about Massachusetts Voter Table and the work that you all do. We work with 23 amazing community organizations across the Commonwealth to increase civic engagement, especially in communities of color, especially in low-income communities, uh, and with trusted messengers across uh, the state who have the reach to uh, find that marginal voter, mm -hmm. um, that person who is a first or first-time or unlikely voter who we are hoping will cast their ballot in the year 2020 because it is so critically important. Important, mm -hmm. uh, and we uh, are working to uh, when voting reforms that make it easier and more accessible to vote, to make it safer to vote. Uh, and then we work with community organizations to get the word out about the importance of the election uh, to people's everyday lives and how to get involved and how to cast their ballots. Oh, that's awesome! All very important information to get out there. I wonder. I mean, you're out there. You're in the community. You're on the ground. What are the blockers to vote, not, I guess, voting and political engagement overall that you see out there? That's a great question, Sam, because democracy doesn't start and end on Election Day, doesn't start and end at the ballot box. We know that this is a 365 or in 2020, 366 day a year <laughs> um, type of issue. And uh, what we see is this cycle of of disengagement. Mm. So when people feel that the government isn't working for them, then they don't participate uh, in elections or other uh, types of public processes. And then when people uh, don't participate, then the government and public institutions are not responsive to people's needs. Mm. What we're trying to do is work with trusted community leaders, uh, especially in immigrant communities, communities of color and low-income communities, to break that cycle of disengagement so that government is more re responsive and reflective uh, of people's everyday needs. We see in so many communities that the city council, the school committee, the state reps do not reflect uh, the particular area's demographics. We see that uh, those decision makers are not responding to the everyday needs of uh, working people, ordinary people, uh, seniors, students, etc. And so our 
goal is to work with community organizations, uh, understand the daily and ever and evergreen needs of people in those communities, uh, what matters to them and their neighbors and friends, uh, to make those uh, top of the ticket issues in every election, every mm-hmm. city council hearing, every uh, state legislative session and more. You know, elections are, you know, they're spaced out by time, right? And if in our minds we're sort of like, well, that's my only way to engage, then yeah, it's easy to kind of forget. But clearly there are ways to engage in the political system outside of elections, right? Advocate, advocacy and um, just speaking truth to power and engaging with, with elected officials can be happening throughout the year, throughout the years, right? And in 2020, more so in the streets, we've seen the most powerful movements for racial justice, even during a global pandemic. It's a reminder that democracy is as much at the ballot box as it is in the streets. Back to voting, what strategies do you employ to make voting more accessible, right? Like we said, we're six weeks away. It just feels like with COVID and so much other, COVID just feels like this little layer, which is crazy because it's a huge pandemic. There's so many other things that are making voting inaccessible. And so how do you kind of tackle that? COVID-19 is the tip of the iceberg for Mm -hmm. so much more systemic oppression and inequity that so many people face on a daily basis. Uh, And voting during COVID-19 feels like a little peak of the iceberg. (laughs) Uh, And what we are trying to do uh, in the year 2020 with the Massachusetts Voter Table is to identify new and unlikely voters uh, who are most likely to cast their ballots in 2020. Mm. There are important mayoral elections. There are important uh, city council school committee elections that are coming up in 2021. There are important ballot questions coming up in 2022. As part of Raise Up Massachusetts, uh, we are fighting for a more progressive taxation system uh, to make sure that everyone's paying their fair share. We have a big ballot initiative uh, that's a constitutional amendment in 2022 to tax income over $1 million to raise $2 billion per year for public transportation and education. However, uh, if we want new voters to become regular voters by 2021 and 2022, that means that we need to pull in as many new and unlikely voters in the year 2020. At the Massachusetts Voter Table, we design what we call a target universe. So every campaign creates a target universe. No one knocks on every single door. Campaigns usually pick the very top layer of voters, Mm -hmm. the people who vote in every single election, and talk to that set of voters and try to persuade the cream of the crop. Uh, what we do at the Massachusetts voter table is we reach out to a more low propensity voter mm. and we talk and we ask them what matters to them and we ask and we mobilize people from their own neighborhoods and communities and networks to then talk to people in their own neighborhoods and communities to get them out to vote. You're talking about uh, getting lower propensity voters to turn out. Um, Uh, And some of the work that we did at the Center for Civic Design and other people have seen this as well, is that it's kind of an invitation, right? Like people who don't normally feel included, if you just ask them and help them a little bit, they will often show up like just showing that it matters. Is that does that reflect your experience, Beth? Absolutely. The one of the first principles of organizing that I ever learned uh, was that you 
people won't do something unless you ask them to do it. <laughs> so what our role is, is to train and empower and resource the leaders and communities with low voter turnout that have low self-response rates to the 2020 census, uh, give them the tools, the resources, and the training to then reach out to their neighbors uh, through a large variety of voter contact uh, tools, such as uh, our favorite, the VAN, the Voter Activation Network, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, which we think of as our data warehouse. And then we also use new tools such as REACH, which is a relational voter engagement tool that functions like a map of your phone tree, which is great for faith-based organizing and membership-based organizing. We also are using tools uh, like Spoke and through text for peer-to-peer texting. We use auto-dialers like through talk to then cycle through thousands of numbers within minutes at a time wow. uh, to then make lots and lots of contacts and bring those marginal voters into the electorate. It just strikes me that you're, it's clearly you're building this movement and it's having an impact. I'm wondering about like community, like is, and I hesitate to use the word like, cause like citizenship is like this community, but obviously non-citizens also matter. But I wonder how community plays into this and how you create experiences or dare I say design a <laughs> movement and like maintain it going forward. Like what are the, you mentioned some of those tools, but what about like the design of your work? Uh, I love that question. Uh, I was a biochemistry major in college uh, before I decided that I badly did not want to go to medical school. Um, but the thing that I still carry over is the idea of form and function fitting together in mm -hmm. intricate processes that need to work. So what we're doing at the Massachusetts Voter Table with our partners at uh, the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, uh, with our partners at MassVote and our partners at the Asian Pacific Islander Civic Action Network is building the regional civic engagement infrastructure. Mm. Uh, right now, because of the 40-year investment in organizing in Boston mostly, but Suffolk County broadly, the gap between the actual power of voters of color and the potential power of voters of color, uh, there's about a one, there's about a 22% gap. Mm. So but statewide, the gap between the total potential power and the actual power is that's a 46% gap. Wow. So what I mean is people of color make up nearly one in five eligible voters, but people of color only cast one in 10 ballots in the year 2018, oh, wow. meaning that the wow. actual power of voters of color is twice the actual power. So yeah. we're only expressing about half of our potential power. And so that's why we need to pull new and unlikely voters into the electorate and why we need a an infrastructure to then train trusted leaders mm -hmm. to reach out to voters, especially voters of color, uh, to pull new voters and unlikely voters, especially voters of color, into the electorate to then shrink the gap between the actual power of people of color mm -hmm. and the potential power of people yeah. of color. Dana, I wonder, I'm going to throw a question at you, actually. Um, so we talked about the uh, field guides. Um, I wonder if you've seen other ways design has played a role in making a better voter experience or making voting like more accessible? Oh, gosh, um, there's so many ways uh, from 
the kind of outreach that election officials do and um, in partnership with community-based organizations like Mass Voter Table. Uh, and it's, it's simple, subtle things like Oh, having a social media presence that mm -hmm. is designed right. and making that a conversation and not just a broadcast medium. It is interacting with ethnic media to get the message out that your vote counts and that it is your vote and nobody can take it away. Uh, it is uh, incorporating good wayfinding at the polling place so folks know where to go and what to do. One thing that is kind of lacking in a lot of places, honestly, is a good website that actually yep. answers yeah. voters' <laughs> questions. Beth, I'm curious, you know, because again, you have this movement, you have this community, you have local leaders. What is the, so when you have that like successful moment and you've got someone who's now an individual who's empowered to participate in not just voting, but maybe the political process, Probably like, what do you see in them? Like, what does that look like for an individual who sort of has that moment? Definitely. I learned uh, from one of my organizing mentors, uh, Heather Booth, uh, who founded the Midwest Academy, uh, from her mentor, Fred Ross, who uh, was uh, the comrade of, um, of Cesar Chavez, that 95% of organizing is follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> what we're really looking for is for new and unlikely voters to register to vote, to cast their ballot in 2020, really so that we can follow up with them in the year 2021. Mm. What right. we're really looking to do is figure out who is an affordable housing voter in Springfield, who is an immigrants' rights voter in Lynn. At least for us, because we're a nonpartisan nonprofit organization, are much less so about uh, what exactly happens on November 3rd, but much more so how we're rolling out the foundation for the next two years, the next five years, the new, the next 10 years, so that we are able to build uh, this foundation uh, of in, for an independent uh, voting block of voters of color. That's super exciting. Um, uh, one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in hearing from you about is most people vote every four years in the presidential elections, but local elections are the things that affect people most directly. And so uh, it feels like so much of your work is targeted there. Um, how, how do you make sure that folks in Suffolk County uh, actually know what's going on in their community so they can weigh in? You know, I mean, if we want affordable housing, we need state action. Right. If we want a zoning code that allows us to build more dense housing, we need both the city council and the state legislature in many cases to take action. We really cannot ignore these local elections. We all, I mean, if you look at the polling, it looks like Biden is going to win Massachusetts by 30 to 40 per percentage points, right? We know what's going to happen in Massachusetts by probably 801 on November 3rd. However, uh, we need mm -hmm. to make sure that all of those new voters stay in the loop, are part of a broader social movement for social change uh, in their own communities mm -hmm. all the way through uh, the entire world. So we need uh, every 
a Puerto Rican migrant who moved from San Juan to Holyoke to know that their vote matters in Massachusetts. We need uh, every naturalized citizen who uh, got their mini American flag at a naturalization ceremony, or maybe not because of COVID-19, to know that their vote matters. We need every young Black person who was in (laughs) Franklin Park in June to know that their vote matters. And it's still going to matter in the year 2021 when we try to bring a whole new group of new voters into the electorate for the next four years. Obviously, the pandemic has changed everything. We have to like rethink everything, whether it's how we work, how we educate ourselves, our kids, and everything. Of course, it's like super digital. Like we're we're talking on a video conference um, that has all become normalized. What in your mind, bo- both your minds, could a more like digital democracy look like? Would that be good, bad? A thing I worry about a more digital democracy is access because access is equity and when there are entire neighborhoods in the greater boston area that don't have broadband access you know where kids are working off donated hotspots like i uh this future is not near of of having a more digital democracy um, you know, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of people working on things like uh, participatory budgeting and uh, other kinds of citizen involvement in cities and city and state government more directly. And uh, right now, those are really privileged processes because they take so much work to understand what's going on and to show up and be present. Um, I think this is kind of a stepwise thing, but like just having public hearings actually available on public access television or in other formats, live feeds uh, that people can actually access. That's a great point, Dana. I know that from our work on the 2020 census, there are 338,000 households in Massachusetts that lack broadband access that even includes uh, a cell phone plan for a smartphone. And that is a lot, a lot of people, not only in rural areas, but also the low-income urban areas that you're describing, Dana. Uh, And I think there are some lessons from the 2020 census that we can learn from uh, about digital participation. Mm -hmm. We saw that rates uh, for responding to the 2020 census increased quite a bit when the first mailing with the actual census form went out instead of just the code to respond Mm. online or the phone number to respond. We know that paper materials still really matter, uh, even in 2020, when it seems like Many people who work from home have an internet connection, a laptop Mm -hmm. and more, but there are still so many people, uh, particularly people who have been hit hard by COVID-19, who still lack access to high-speed internet, uh, who still lack the hardware to participate uh, and the resources to participate in terms of time uh, and, and the norm of participation in their communities. Thank you both. Uh, This has been great. And thank you, Beth, for joining us and for all the work that you and your team are doing in the state as as a resident. I will. um, I'm very grateful. Listeners, check out Beth and her team's work at the Massachusetts Voter Table as they gear up for this election. Visit mavotertable.org. 
Okay, it's that time. Time for our weekly dose of good design where we share examples of good design that have impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll start off this week. My weekly dose this week is a TV show that I've basically become obsessed with uh, and I'm just loving it. So I, I wanted to share because I somehow missed it when it originally aired on AMC, I think 2014 through 2017. It's called Halt and Catch Fire. Um, it, it was created by Christopher Cantwell and Christopher Rogers and stars Lee Pace, Scoot McNary and Mackenzie Davis. It's basically, it's a period drama that starts in the early 80s and charts, charts the rise of the personal computer and online communities and ultimately the internet and search engines all by following this group of fictional engineers, programmers, and entrepreneurs. And while charting this history, it's, it's basically charting this history through telling their personal stories as entrepreneurs. And as an entrepreneur myself, who's juggling work and family and many competing priorities, uh, it really resonates with me. Uh, the characters are certainly composites. Like there's one character you're like, okay, this is the Steve Jobs character who's like the visionary. <laughs> um, and they're very much, you know, exaggerations of characters of that time, but you can really feel their struggles as like they're trying to make their like technological visions a reality and just their own vision and their drive as characters in the show. It, it you know, as I'm watching, it's like inspiring me. I'm getting these feelings of like, yeah, like anything's possible, <laughs> um, which is always just a good feeling to have, especially now, you know, during the pandemic of like, yeah, start something like take that long shot. And so basically, if you are a fan of, I'd say, like Mad Men and you have any interest in computers, venture capital or Silicon Valley, I'd say check it out. And I think you'll enjoy it. All right, Dana, you are next. Yeah, it sounds like that show is really inspiring. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Can I have two? Uh, Please. Yeah. Doses. Mm -hmm. So uh, one is the postcard that I got from my town clerk. Uh, prompting me to uh, sign up to vote by mail. Mm. Um, this was not an ordinary year in any way. Like town clerks and city clerks in Massachusetts do not normally do that, send you a postcard to urge you to sign up for vote by mail. Right. Um, but they, uh, thanks to a number of moving factors, did that this year. And this one was especially nice. I don't know if it came from a state template or not, but it came uh, in July and it was really simple and I could sign up both for the statewide primary and for the general election mm -hmm. at the same time. And I thought that was very smart and, um, it was pretty clear how to do that. Man, um, awesome. you probably get mail from people though, who got a similar postcard saying, I didn't understand the asterisks, <laughs> um, but <laughs> since we have party-based primaries, yes. uh, so that that was thing one. Um, and thing two is um, is bubbles. Uh, <laughs> I have a friend who's four and a half, and uh. good bubble soap and a good wand uh, for bubbles is just like one of the best ways to spend time outside in any season. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, they're beautiful, they're uh, ephemeral, uh, you can try to catch them, they float in the wind, like there are just so many good things about bubbles. Oh, and yeah, so... I am going to second that big time. I have a three-year-old <laughs> and sometimes she'll just look at me and she'll say, I want to blow bubbles. 
and we just go on the front step. And I mean, as an as a parent, like what better like mental image is there than like your child like surrounded by bubbles? Exactly. It's like it's so nice. <laughs> it's so nice. Yeah, and it's, it's so, so simple. Nice. Yeah, that's a yeah. that's a really good one. Awesome. Oh, thanks so much for being here, Dan. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's been my absolute pleasure and honor. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me, Sam. Yeah, pleasure. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. And thank you again to Dana Chisnell and Beth Huan for joining us and sharing their expertise. Also, here's another friendly reminder. Make sure you vote. The election is coming up and there are many elections coming up. So make sure you engage. We'll post links to both websites and to some other resources we talked about on our episode page. Just visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. While you're on there, make sure you go to the events section and check out the Workplace Innovation Summit. It's going to be a really great, basically an online festival of new and innovative ideas around how we work together, where we work, you know, remote work, and just generally what the future looks like for workspaces. Uh, It's going to be a mix of keynote presentations, networking opportunities, and workshops. So be sure to get your tickets now and take advantage of those early bird prices. Also, drop us a note on social media. You can find us on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. If you love this show, be sure to share it with your design-loving friends. And be sure to subscribe so you get the latest episodes in your feed every Thursday. And if you really love this show, give us a rating and leave a review too. Both of those things help other people find our show. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and we're produced by Ryan Flom. We're edited by Amanda Martinez. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for listening, and we'll talk again next week.